0: Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the many, many preachers that we have here. And um, it is my privilege to continue through Exodus. The last time I shared might have been in November or so. And we've come a long way. We've come a long way in the book of Exodus in just a few short months. We're in Exodus chapter 21 and 22 today, so turn there. You heard a word. As Jeff and Adam opened us up today and you see a word in your bulletin that I bet you're kind of familiar with, but you, probably, you might not be able to give it a good definition. In fact, it's a word that you usually just hear if you're in court and probably not too many of you have been in court recently. It's a word, restitution, that I think you're not really familiar with verbally, but you all experience it every day. in in a kind of broken way. It's something that we see of every day, but it's just kind of wrong when we see it. Here's a scenario. Say you buy something, like a toaster or something, and it works for about three days, and then it breaks. That ever happened to you? You buy something, and it breaks, maybe right out of the box. But instead of getting like a refund or some sort of compensation... You get a scripted apology from a customer service representative. Or maybe, maybe at best, you get your money back, minus the cost of shipping, of course. And uh, a whole afternoon of your day off is now gone. Wasted. Trying to get things fixed. Or let's move from the everyday to the more painful. Maybe you have a friend or a spouse... Who continues to sin against you. They continue to threaten your trust. But you know what? They keep saying they're going to change. They keep saying, I'm sorry. But they just don't change. And you keep settling for the same old excuses. Here's the uh, definition of restitution now that I've given you examples. It's compensation. 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 From the offending party for damages caused to the offended party. So, compensation is maybe a short word. And when it's done wrongly, it can make a bad situation even worse. Why are scenarios like the ones I just said so common? Because I bet one of those things has happened to each of you guys in the last month. One of those things. It's because restitution is not inherent. People aren't naturally inclined to seek it, whether they've been hurt or whether they're the ones doing the hurting. That's actually a biblical truth. At the beginning of everything, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve broke their promise to obey God, they didn't even own up. They hid. They hid from the God that they sinned against. And he had to come find them. And it only got worse. In Genesis 4, they had a descendant, a guy named Lamech. If you're familiar with Genesis, you might know that name. If not, Lamech. Descendant named Lamech, upon being attacked by a young man one day, didn't seek restitution. He killed the guy. I have killed a young man for wounding me, he said. As time passed, things kept getting worse, and today we're often so numb to the hope of actual restitution that the brightest spot in our day is when the replacement toaster shows up. Restitution has been so cheapened by people that it eventually becomes more about getting our stuff back, and it's often completely unconcerned with the eternal souls of the other people involved, we don't even think about it. But God loves to restore the things that have been broken. How good it is when brothers live together in unity. When God's people became oppressed slaves in Exodus, God rescued them. But they repaid His good with evil and. They grumbled and complained, and yet God persisted. He gave them stuff for their trouble in Egypt. And here he's kindly teaching them that restitution for sin is not only possible, it's actually how life should work. He's teaching them restitution because it wasn't inherent. Because the world around them, what do they know? Revenge, division, and God says, no, I'm going to actually teach you how to restore relationships. Here in Exodus 21, God is teaching his people how to be a light in a very dark world. It was learned, and this right here that we're going to read is 101, so to speak. So restitution is possible not because of man, but because of God who loves to restore. We have to know that up front. In fact, a related word for restitution is Restoration. It's so close, I'm actually going to use the words interchangeably like I did in the title. So here's your outline. I want to first draw your attention to the goal of restitution. Why is it important? Then I'm going to explain how that points to God, and then I'm going to talk about what that means for us. So let's start with point one on your outline. Restitution isn't one-for-one repayment. It's fair compensation. I'm going to read the whole 2133 through 22:14, And then a little later, we're going to go back and focus in on the end portion. So this is God illustrating, as it were, giving case studies from the Ten Commandments, which he's just given. So I'm going to start in chapter 21, verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they should sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast they shall also share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for one ox and four sheep for one sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and struck so that he dies, there should be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, that is, if he hasn't died, there should be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain of the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not. He has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox or a donkey or a sheep or a cloak or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall be double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away. Without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord should be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it's torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or died, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. Let me be so bold as to say that if, um, if, you got a, if you have a New Year's resolution to read a Bible, read your whole Bible throughout the year, this is usually the part where you start skipping pages, right? I've got to give you some historical context. Because oxen and sheep and donkeys, they probably don't mean a lot to most of you, right? Is Becca here? Becca likes those things. But if you're in an agrarian society, let me tell you how valuable these verses are. Animals were how you got your food and your clothing. Anybody like food and clothing? (laughs) We're hopefully doing both of those things this morning. Now imagine if you only have one ox. Say you're one of the uh, less fortunate members of Israel's tribe, and you have one ox, and chapter 22, verse 1 happens. Look down at it. Your neighbor takes your only ox. Imagine what happens after that. And you go a few days without knowing who took it, and so your crop suffers and probably dies without that ox, Maybe a few weeks later, you find out that your neighbor took it, and say he decides to bring a new one and park it right on top of your dead crops. Do you see how that repayment plan falls a little bit short? It's like the broken toaster. Even if you get your money back, it's not enough. Here's why. When somebody takes something from you, you don't just lose that thing. You lose things like time. And you lose things like trust. And those things cannot be bought. There is no price tag on those things. Let me illustrate with an example for the children. Kids, say you're in Sunday school. And you're playing with a toy. And somebody takes it. We'll say one of the other kids, not the teachers. And they take it from you. And then later on, at the end of the class, they give it back. Is everything okay? Now, some of you that are more forgiving might be like, well, maybe. You know, I got my stuff back. What if they do that every week? What if every week you come in and they greet you at the door and take what you have? Are you going to trust that kid? (laughs) I wouldn't. (laughs) See, everything isn't okay. You lose trust for the person. And so you getting your stuff back, that doesn't do it. Because your toy isn't really the point. Something worse has happened. Something seemingly unfixable has happened. Your friendship has been damaged. Your unity has been damaged. One to one isn't enough because sin is complicated. So what is fair compensation? How many zeros have to be on that check? Well, the same verse says this. Five oxen for one ox. Go back to the Agrarian Society with me. You think you can rustle up some new crops with five oxen? Yeah. In fact, you have, you have triple the, you, if you take three of them and you have like triple the plowing power, you can throw a party with the last two as the main course if the food thing doesn't work out. You got plenty. But let's go beyond stuff. Let's go even deeper than that. You think you're more likely to be friends with your neighbor now? Yeah, because that was a stiff fine, and I bet he's not going to steal again. I want to look at 22:5 as another case study. I'm not going to hit them all. A neighbor lets his animals out, and they get onto your property, and let's say you lose half your food supply. And you have to go home that night and tell your family that the whole food thing isn't going to work out. But without knocking on your neighbor's door, the next day, he provides restitution. He brings the best of his harvest to you and lays it at your feet. The best of his harvest. What might that do for your relationship with your neighbor? He has just assumed you have lost more than you may have lost. You might have lost the best of your stuff. You might have lost weeds. But he assumes the best of you. And he is generous. And he has taken a major hit. And you know what? This wasn't even malicious like theft. This is a loose animal. Maybe negligence. You think you might be more inclined that winter to share with your neighbor in his hour of need? Yeah, I bet you would. All these examples here in Exodus show fair compensation. Like I said, I'm not going to hit them all. But they all talk about the person who offended taking a big hit and giving generously to the person who was offended. And I use that to draw you into the point. But point one, sin is destructive, and it takes a lot of work for restitution. Restitution is not cheap. Don't settle for cheap restitution. So here it means not just putting the person back to where they were or where you might assume they were. They're actually being elevated. They're being lifted up. It's almost like you're flooding the bad with a tidal wave of good. Just imagine your next toaster purchase going like that. That'd be a pretty cool world to live in. But you know what? Restitution doesn't actually stop there. You don't just elevate people who are sinned against. Restitution actually points both the offender and the offended to God together. Let's look together. Like I promised earlier, I'm going to repeat the last little chunk. I'm just going to do chapter 22, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to reread those, and we're going to zoom back in on them. If a man gives to his, or if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both, to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what's been torn. If a man bars anything of his neighbor and it is injured or died, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution." Let's look at a case study here, verses 8 and 9. The case study is stolen goods and no thief in sight. Thieves tend to not stick around after they've stolen things. So the two parties come together and they want to see if the claim of theft is true. So the stakes are high. One of them could be lying. One of them probably is lying. Verse 9 says, The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor, big cost. All your possessions times two. But don't miss the point. Think of how radical that statement is. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. There's no police, there's no jury. There's two people settling it between themselves. Who does that these days? How is it possible for a situation like that to end up with restitution? Like I said earlier, it's not only possible, it's how things should work. Things can't actually work this way. But here's the only way it works. If both parties are submitting to God's authority. That's the only way that happens. It's God's authority that does the heavy lifting of conviction. I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of Israel as you're hearing this stuff. What's just happened to you? Historically, you've been freed from an oppressive king, you probably lost family. And you've been heavily compensated with treasure by a God who is leading you to a place where you will not be oppressed. He's a merciful God. He's consumed with justice and he's eager to rescue his people and be near them. Do you think in light of that, if you had a disagreement with your neighbor, that you could trust a God like that with a resolution? I think so. That's why the offender and the offended can both stand under the authority of God. Not necessarily because both people are making good choices. One of them might not actually be telling the truth. No, they do it because God is good. God's the ultimate authority. Verses 11 and 12, let me repeat those one more time. An oath by the Lord shall be between them to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. Let me just draw us into what that actually means. So they're trying to work it out. They're trying to figure out the facts. And if one of them makes an oath, then the matter is closed and it's okay. God's going to dispense justice either way, isn't he? You guys ever had a court case or a disagreement go south? You know you're telling the truth. And they said, I swear I didn't do that. After a while, you're just like, all right, God's going to handle it. Same thing here. God will dispense restitution. It's about mutual submission. Submission by the person who's offended to say, all right, you know, the Lord's going to convict me. I'm going to come out with the truth. And then I'm going to provide the restitution. God's going to convict you and almost provide it through your guilt. Or in the case of the offended person, if truth is not found. If justice is not served, they can just trust in God's going to serve justice. It's because ultimately it points to God. It's not really about the horizontal. That's not how restitution really happens. No case in human history will get past God. That's what that means. Some company rips you off. If you can take care of it, great. Great. If you can get your money back for that toaster, great. But if you don't, okay. And if they don't submit to God, restitution is never going to happen. It's just going to be one of those cheap examples at the beginning. Restitution really only works. Redeemed relationships only happen if both parties are submitting to God. See some company, some guy on the phone that doesn't know who Jesus is. He's going to give you some fake oath. We strive for excellence here. No money back. It's not learned. Or it's it's an, it's inherent. It's not it's, it's it's not inherent. It's learned. But what about what about okay, you you might say okay, Comcast, yeah, I know they rip people off. Yeah, that's easy. What about us? What about the good guys? What about when the need for restitution hits the church? I'm going to get that, get to that in application. Hold on a sec. Because I have to do something first. I have to point all this up to God. i got to do that or else it's going to be wrong. Application will be wrong if I don't connect it back to God. Point three, restitution is important to us because it's important to God. Okay, I've been making the point all throughout this thing. God loves restitution. He invented it. He rescued his people from slavery and he promised them good things. How did they repay him? Remember that? They cursed him. Send us back to Egypt that we might die. That's what they said to God. And before that, the beginning of everything, God gave Adam and Eve perfection. They had a relationship that didn't need restitution because there was no sin. They had perfect unity. But how did they treat him? They broke the only rule they had to keep and then they hid. They sinned against a holy God. See, and I I really have to use the word holy because without that restitution really does fall apart. How do you restore yourself to a holy God? Here's a short answer. Or here's maybe another way of putting it. Think back over your whole life. How many ox do you owe Jesus? How do you actually provide restitution to God? What are Adam and Eve going to do? Spit out the fruit and give it back? No, the trust is gone. What are they going to do? Give God a whole tree worth of fruit? Just going to back a truck up? You can't do that. It's not your fruit. Israel had the same problem. They couldn't keep these rules. They probably skipped over the pages like some of you guys did with the Old Testament reading plan. They couldn't keep these rules because, to be honest, they didn't want to. They'd rather kill people for wounding them. That's why God said later in the Old Testament, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't want your sacrifices because they stink. (laughs) I don't want your oxen. They mean nothing to me. Human history leads us to one conclusion. God's people can't repay him. They can't provide restitution. So God did it himself. He sent Jesus. And you've probably heard that one a bunch of times too. But I I want you to remind yourself of how good that news is. Think about it. This is not us, the guilty party, overwhelming our own evil with a tidal wave of good. That's not what happens. This is actually the offended party, that's God, overwhelming our evil with his infinite good. He provides the restitution because we can't. Let me now ask you the same question I just asked of Israel a few paragraphs ago. Okay, you've been freed, if you're a Christian, you have been freed from the most oppressive king of all, that's you, or queen, and you haven't been given mere treasure, but actual new life, and family by a god who is leading you to a place where oppression doesn't even exist in light of that do you think if you have a disagreement with your neighbor here that you can trust a god like that with a resolution i think you can The same God of Exodus is your God. This has been God's character from the beginning. Jesus wasn't some hippie who came down to apologize for the God of the Old Testament. God loves restitution, and you see it all over the Bible, old and new. So in light of that restitution by God towards us, be restored to one another. How do we do that? Restitution is important to us because it's important to God. Because it's so important to God that he sends Jesus to die on our behalf, that restitution then becomes very important for us this way. Horizontally towards our brothers and sisters here on earth. In other words, we live out horizontal restitution because of the vertical restitution we have in Jesus. We do, right? Because there's a few examples in the New Testament about what this might look like for a Christian to disbelieve that even after hearing the good news. It's in Matthew 18. Anybody know where I'm going? It's the parable of the unforgiven servant. A servant owes his master... An unbelievable sum. Jesus is telling this story to a bunch of religious people, by the way. That's the best part. A servant owes his master an unbelievable sum of money, probably millions in today's money. Too much to be paid back. And so the master forgives his servant. And this servant goes out and almost immediately shakes down one of his friends for a small amount owed to him, maybe a few hundred bucks. And the master sees this, and he casts out his servant for his wickedness. Everybody remember, who are we in this parable? Who, who, who's, who are the Pharisees in this parable? They're the servant. The problem is that he spurned the restitution of his master, and he lashes out his friend, and his master then removes that restitution. You pay the bill. He can't. Another way of looking at that is you can tell how much somebody believes in their own vertical restitution by how they forgive their neighbor. Right? Let me give you a happy example from the New Testament of what restitution should probably look like. It's a guy named Zacchaeus. Anybody remember that guy? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Song? No? Okay. I like him because he's short. Um... So he's a tax collector, and he's stealing money from everybody all over town. And people are crossing by on the other side of the road because they hate him. Who wouldn't? He steals from everybody. And one day Jesus comes to his town, and everybody's like really excited, and they line up in a parade line or something. And Zacchaeus, he's short, so he has to climb up in a tree because he wants to see this person everybody's talking about. And Jesus looks up and says, I want to come to your house. I don't know if Zacchaeus thought maybe he was going to get taken to the woodshed for that. But Jesus goes to his house. And we don't know exactly how the conversation went. But Zacchaeus is a changed person. Jesus, in some way or another, sets him free. Do you remember what Zacchaeus says? I'm going to go out and I'm going to give everybody... Four times where I stole from them. Restitution. But how did it happen? Did Jesus say, Zacchaeus, go pay people back and then, then I'll come to your house. No, he didn't. He came to his house first. And the response of Zacchaeus was joyful restitution. That's that's your application. That was general. If you're a big picture, you love that. But I can get specific too. How do we live out horizontal restitution? I've got three applications. I've got one for those offended and uh, two for those who offend because we often do twice as much damage as we, we receive, I think. So to the offenders, application number one. Joyfully provide restitution in response to God's restitution towards you. What does that even look like? Let's take Zacchaeus as an example. Maybe you used to steal from people. Maybe you used to lie all the time. And then you become a Christian, and then what do you do? Kind of go off and hang out at church and forget about those old people? No, why don't you go back to them and tell them what you did and pay them back four times. You think that might be a good testimony to them? I bet and here's the thing. You don't come in there saying, oh, I gotta pay you back. I gotta pay you back or Jesus isn't let me in. You say, God has saved me. He's given me a new heart. I have wronged you. I love you. Let me give you your stuff back. Here, here's more stuff. Because I love you. Because Jesus loves me. You think they might throw you in jail? If they're like, a, if Comcast might do that, they might throw you in jail. Maybe. But they're probably going to love that. <laughs> they might even come to church with you. Seek restitution you, you, with people you sinned against before you became a Christian. Have you done that? Here's an everyday small example for other cases. You know, that's, say, talking about people before you became Christian. How Christian. How about people here? How do you joyfully provide restitution? Here's one. If you break somebody's stuff, if you borrow somebody's stuff here and you break that stuff, buy them good stuff. Don't hit up Craigslist. Don't do it. Because that's how, that's how Christians work. There's this like social assumption. I think that there's actually a lot of value that Christians are notoriously cheap. They buy the fake Oreos. <laughs> right? Buy the good Oreos. <laughs> All right, I'll move on before I get hung up on a rabbit trail. Okay, second one for offenders. Remember that restitution is hard work. Restitution is hard work because sin is really, really bad. Another way of saying it is broken relationships can't be fixed with an apology or repayment. It might take a little bit more than that. It might take a lot more. And that's okay. Sin's bad. That's why Jesus had to hang on a cross. It wasn't light work. In other words, if you sinned against your friend or your spouse or your kids, ask them if they would forgive you. Start there. Don't say, I'm sorry. That's one side. Say, would you forgive me? We practice that with our kids all the time. Don't say, I'm sorry. That's not good enough. Ask their forgiveness. Submit to them. Then ask how you can be a better friend, or a spouse, or a father, or a mother. And listen way more than you're tempted to talk. And do that stuff. And if it takes years for them to trust you, okay. Just shows you how bad the sin is. Cost five ox. I don't want to steal again. Now, there are, there are severe examples here. Uh, adultery is, is maybe one that comes to mind. I can weigh pretty heavily on a marriage, something like that. I, um, I remember, I, I've, I've read probably so many examples of marriages that just end after that. And you know what? I mean, in the the Bible, I mean, there's lots of evidence where it's like, hey, you know, don't get divorced except for adultery. That's like, it's really bad. Jesus is like, yeah, you can go ahead and get divorced for that. Like, it's severe. There's severe examples. And I, I say that to sort of clarify this application. Vertical reconciliation is totally promised. Horizontal, maybe not. Not so much. Sin is really that bad. You can kind of burn the bridge with people, right? Anybody had some bridges burned for them? Or maybe you burned a couple? Sin is destructive. But, when rebuilding happens, it is amazing. I've actually, there, there's some friends of mine that they actually, yeah, there was some, there was some adultery committed. And they actually stayed married. It doesn't happen every time. They, and do you know how it happened? It wasn't a check. It wasn't a bunch of apologies. It was both people submitting to God. Remember, you need that. So if the rebuilding doesn't happen, it could be just because one of the people isn't submitting to God. In fact, that has to be the answer. But when rebuilding happens, it is a beautiful thing. It's a picture of God... And Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwelling together. How good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's beautiful. Last application for the offended. Seek reconciliation, not revenge. All I'm going to say here is let the debt you once owed to God be on your mind so that you're driven to forgive people. But I'll clarify that clarification by saying forgiveness doesn't always mean things go back to normal right away. Because I know some people and I grew up in a culture where if somebody stole something from you or somebody committed a crime, your job was to say, oh, that's OK. But that's you, you, you know, that's only genuine if, if that same person is not a bitter person. And I was a very bitter person. So in, even in your own heart, if you're the kind of person who says, oh, it's okay, you don't have to give me that, lo- you don't have to fix that lawnmower that you broke, and then you kind of seethe against that person, you haven't forgiven them. Don't make reconciliation cheap. Sometimes it means letting them buy you a new one. And if not, give it to me. I could use a new lawnmower. No, you should probably get a new lawnmower. But yeah, it, it doesn't. But yeah, forgiveness doesn't always mean that things go back to normal right away. If you, um, if you, if you're in a situation where where you're the victim of adultery, you don't have to pretend to shrug that off. You don't have to assume that your job is to automatically say okay and then just move right back in. It might take time. And all that shows is that sin is destructive. But with patience and with trust and Lord willing if both parties are submitting to God, reconciliation, restitution can happen. But if not, the big restitution has been paid. God saw it. You're the victim. And even the world turns its back on you. The Lord saw it. He'll take care of it. So I'll close with this. Our attempts at restitution are not going to be perfect. They're not. Israel's weren't. But their loving God is the same God as our loving God. And in Exodus, God gently taught his people to earnestly work to restore what they had broken. To try and fix what they destroyed. He knew that they weren't going to do it right. But he let them do it anyway. He wanted them to take part in a picture of the greater restitution in Jesus. And the same is true for us every time we seek unity with people that we've sinned against or people that have sinned against us. It's a picture of unity in the Lord. And we can do that because the cross is behind us, not like Exodus. And we're looking ahead to the cross. We can look behind knowing that our redemptive work isn't really about us. It's about Jesus. Let me pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for this concept. I I pray that you would refresh me so that as I I read through the Old Testament, I'm not tempted to flip pages. Lord, that you would help me to to look at stories like this and say, Jesus, where are you here? I know your good character is in here somewhere and I'm going to find it. And Lord, as I'm doing this, and as we're doing this, would you help us? Would you help people today? If there's a need to be restored or to restore themselves to another person here, I pray that you convict them. Maybe during small groups, maybe afterwards, maybe during the week. But would you work in in both parties? Would you help them to mutually be submitting to you so that they can dwell together in unity? Amen.